Welcome to On the Road to No Place Left. This is Feeney, and I'm driving, as we learn to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard. This is an unofficial beginning to season six. How did we get here? That's a pretty big existential question, but I'm specifically talking about this. How did we get to the point that we are talking about pursuing the multiplication of churches and disciples. Let's jump in with Warwick Farah to talk about an article he recently wrote about the beginning and growth of modern movements. Yeah, my name is Warwick Farah. I am the uh, founder and a facilitator of the Modus Day Network, and we have a book that came out last year by that same title, Modus Day, The Movement of God to Disciple the Nations. We're looking at um, improving and deepening the uh, missiological conversation around the disciple-making or church-planting movements phenomenon. So I'm a missiologist. I serve with One Collective, and I'm also um, uh, a researcher. And so in part of my own personal curiosity of where movements came from, uh, I guess, came about writing this article that uh, we're referencing here, The Genesis and Evolution of Church Planting Movements Missiology. No, I didn't really get too much credit for this, but I I put Genesis and Evolution in the title of the article, so I thought that was kind of clever. <laughs> there you go. I didn't even catch that. It's a good word. Um, <laughs> depending on your stream of Christianity, you would read that and throw it out before you even got past the <laughs> yeah. words. So. Yeah, right. Um, Let's just go back in history a little bit, and, and I guess to, to paint um, this in a um, in, in its proper context, you need to go back to basically, you know, to William Carey. Um, he set out for India around 1800. And a generation after all these missionaries had gone out from the global north where Christianity was, you know, this white uh, religion in the global north. But then they established all these indigenous churches in various contexts. They were really thinking like, well, how do we how do we deal with these with these churches? What how do they relate to our mission structures? And so there's some researchers by the name of um, or missiologists by the name of Rufus Anderson, Henry Venn. You know, they started talking about um, this three cell formula, which we'll get to. And then uh, another uh, missionary in Korea named uh, John Nevius was building on some of their ideas. Um, and then basically around the turn of the century, a guy named Roland Allen starts writing about um, these. He's an English missionary who was in China. He starts writing and describing um, this spontaneous mul- spontaneous multiplication of churches and Paul's missionary methods. And he's building off of their, um, the, the work that had gone before him, but he's talking about, okay, churches really, they should be self-supporting, self-propagating and self-governing. And this was kind of a way to, so the seedbed of a post-colonial approach to mission. So these were saying these churches, they should not be under colonial control. They, they should be their own churches. So he would be a, a major influence um, that looked at uh, indigeneity. Uh, and then Donald McGavran came. Uh, he died in uh, 1990. Donald McGavran was around 30, 40 years after Roland Allen. And, and he was famous for starting what was came to be called the church growth movement. And one of the things that he focused on, he had a lot of contributions to missiology, and he also gets uh, variously critiqued in different conversations. But one of his lasting contributions to this conversation was 
uh, is emphasis on social networks um, and, and seeing how um, faith was spreading within social networks. So this is very different than the typical mission station approach. Uh, and then Ralph Winter would be the third major influence, and he died in the year 2009. And Ralph Winter was famous for his address at uh, Lausanne um, number one in 1974, where he talked about um, people blindness that came to be known as the concept of people groups, which is used a lot in missiology. And he also talked about uh, and really emphasized multiplication. And he put together the Perspectives book. And the, the second edition of Perspectives had a chapter by George Patterson on um, the multiplication of churches. And so really in the 1980s, uh, in connection with the U.S. Center for World Mission, which is now known as Frontier Ventures, mm. uh, they started using this, this uh, phrase, church planting movements, CPM. But it wasn't really given any formal definition. It was just kind of thrown around here and there in, in, in various publications. So really, you look at um, all three of these influences, indigeneity, uh, Roland Allen, social networks, Donald McGavran, and then the unreached multi multiplication, Ralph Winter. This is all happening in the 80s. And this is kind of probably the three major influences that fed into what we would identify now as the church planting movements or disciple making movements conversation. So one of the things that was kind of in its twilight at that time was the church growth movement. And it came to be criticized for being really pragmatic, um, for being theological shallow, theologically shallow, and for being a bit reductionistic. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of those criticisms were quite valid. The church growth movement has since rebranded. It's now the Great Commission Research Network, um, and it, it focuses on on a similar um, conversation. But basically, the church the church planting movements conversation finds its genesis. I use that term in the twilight of the church growth movement conversation. So that goes back to around 1990. I'm going to do my best to both from the article that will link to that and also um, just even link to some of those kind of primary sources that you used and even just referenced. I think a lot of us maybe know some of those names, but don't see how those come together. And I would appreciate that track and then kind of give us what would you say if we think of our current movement missiology? Like if you could point to a beginning and the beginning might be um, the Great Commission, right? But a modern beginning, where would you kind of where would you point to that and just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I would say it was a, an innovation that happened um, in the 1990s in a division of the International Mission Board, which was then called the Foreign Mission Board. That this this division was called the CSI Cooperative Services International. Uh, and when I use the word innovation, I want to stress, too, that most innovations are not like radical paradigm shifts, but they're more commonly thought of as slight tweaks to existing paradigms. And so CPM might appear to be a radical paradigm shift, but it really is just kind of a convergence of these three various streams in this division within IMB. And so back in the 1990s, one of the things that they did was they hired the, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. They hired a British statistician and sociologist of religion by the name of David Barrett. So David Barrett's very famous, very well known. 
He wrote the the groundbreaking World Christian Encyclopedia that was published in 1982. Mm -hmm. Um, And and he really um, did a phenomenal job of uh, just showing how unreached the world was. And he had also studied over 600 religious movements in Africa as part of his PhD research. So he was a very well-known um, researcher um, and, and missiologist. And when he came into the IMB, um, he started talking about this idea of the unreached. And around that time, too, they hired uh, David Garrison. And, and he was the director of the Cooperative Services International, CSI. They also came up with a concept at that time of, okay, we want to reach the world for Christ. We want to engage these unreached places. And so they they realized, though, that they can't get, quote unquote, missionaries in some of these contexts. So they came up with the idea of the non-residential missionary. Hmm. So that's the N. There's too many acronyms here. Yeah. So I'll just, I won't say it. That's the NRM. So in the CSI. Um, the Cooperative Services International, the, the first non-residential missionary was Bill Smith. And, and Bill Smith was uh, uh, also a doctoral student. He's still alive. I interviewed him for um, uh, data and, and the story for this article. And um, he was a guy who had a background um, and, and able to do research and able to do analysis and uh, of context. And you remember in the 1990s, this is when the internet was getting going. So, so all of a sudden you have at your fingertips, anybody who knows a little bit about research, you can start researching contexts. Mm -hmm. And so they they started to uh, do research on all these people groups um, from a distance as non-residential missionaries. And they started to write these strategic plans, a strategic master plan. What would it take? And that's when they framed this, uh, this nice little turn here. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to reach the world for Christ? And so they would say, we have a God-sized goal. We want to reach everybody in this people group. Uh, we need to mobilize prayer. We need to learn how to cope with limited resources. We need to study the book of Acts to see what they did. They started gathering case studies. Uh, and then they started to study um, what does it take to be a good networker and to really partner with other what they call Great Commission Christians. And so Bill Smith was able to work with Ying and Grace Kai. They were a Taiwanese couple with a history of church planting. And and through their partnership, they started a a movement in China. And then uh, David Watson was also early on in the CSI, and he was able to partner with people like Victor John and Shidanke Johnson to see movements start in in India and Africa, West Africa, respectively. So, you know, at that point, really in the in the 1990s then you start to see this idea of church planting movements really start to coalesce and it, and and at this point too is when you start to see people criticizing it because it looks like radical innovation from Christendom ecclesiology and southern baptist polity but it really wasn't that radical and really wasn't that new if you look at its what i call its antecedents that the the streams that it came from you're you're totally right. There's so many acronyms when you get into any sort of uh, <laughs> these conversations. So I was just chuckling to myself as you were talking about CSI. I was like, oh, yeah, that was that crime show that was like brand new when I was uh, in college. So that's funny. There's a lot of TLAs. Mm-hmm. TLA is a three letter acronym. So there's a lot of TLAs. There's in a lot of TLAs. Yeah. Yeah. What happened uh, basically from there in this kind of like. I'm in my mind, I know that's not what it was, but just kind of this like this special like lab unit that they're like cooking up these ideas. And I appreciate 
the reminder that it was just a continuation of what God was already doing. It wasn't this radical shift, but kind of what happened from there as they started to see some fruit in these places. Well, David Garrison was the program director of the CSI, and they had started in the 90s. Remember, this is the twilight of the church growth movement. So they had started um, seeing some movements um, and they're tracking, I think, around seven movements at that time that had started in Cambodia, India, China and Cuba. And and so Garrison started to uh, visit these movements. He was already involved in coaching these um non-residential missionaries also wrote a book on that uh, by that title and then they gathered together two focus groups of other north american what they called them later they became to be called strategy coordinators and in 1995 and 1997 they had two meetings just with a bunch of whiteboards and saying what what is happening in in these movements and so they had seven i think to analyze at that point and that's where you um see for the first time the missiology start to coalesce around describing what these were. So the 10 common elements that I think most most of your listeners will be familiar with. This was published in a book by the International Mission Board that Garrison wrote called Church Planting Movements, 57-page booklet. And it turned out to be so popular that it was translated into over 40 different languages. So, and I still have, you know, copies in multiple languages. I've, I've seen it. I, I read it myself in, in the year 2002. Um, and then right around the turn of the century, um, you there's around 30 movements at that point. So the numbers of movements continue to grow. And so with that also came the opportunity for more, more research. So in 2004, Garrison then published a, the expansion of the, of the CPM booklet into a book by the same title and um, expanded the ideas. And then also David Watson, Curtis Sargent, they started developing a missiology of movements. Uh, In 2011, um, Craig Ott and Gene Wilson published uh, an important book called Global Church Planting. And you start to see this in in around 2005 to 2010, a lot of energy around, around movements. It was still relatively new in the overall missions conversation. Um, but it started to really gain in, in, in popularity. Um, and so what you see there is kind of a mix of these descriptive elements and prescriptive ideas. I think you can point to there in the 1990s, uh, CPM started as an innovation within IMB's CSI. And then it really formalized in, in the 2000s into a more widely known missiological concept. Mm. Yeah, and I appreciated the table you put in the article. Um, do you want to briefly, you mentioned church planning movements. What were the two other works that you kind of, you laid out basically as they were, and I can't remember, that was probably kind of the exact area you're talking about. But if you just want to comment on that table and what you did there to highlight kind of some of the similarities people were seeing. Yeah, I mean, so so Garrison wrote the 10 common elements and also I think it's seven deadly sins for church planting movements. Uh, David Watson uh, wrote something that he was using for training called the critical path of every church planting movement. And then um, in in the book, their chapter on movements, uh, Craig Ott and Gene Wilson, um, they also started to talk about um, and and kind of outline what what were these church planting movements? What do they look like? And then what are some of their barriers? And so if you put these just in three different columns next to each other, you're going to see there's a lot of overlap. So but it's not Again, these this is it's interesting. These are these are written by 
yeah, North American men. And, you know, there is, I think, something to say that we can talk about later. Perhaps there are certain ways our conversation has been restricted by that kind of monocultural perspective. And maybe the next step in in our discourse, in our research, is to really look at how are indigenous catalysts describing uh, the movement themselves. Mm-hmm. Another, both the monoculture and also, am I right in saying all of these guys were kind of just like figuring it out on the front lines at the time that we even published those things? And now we've got, what, what year is it? Now, in some cases, 20 further years of, of both research and um, many hundreds of more movements to continue to comment and refine basically those same principles. Am I right in, in how I said that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, church planting movements got a lot of uh, energy, um, but all of a sudden what you see in the 2000s is everybody starts calling this what they're doing a church planting movement. In 2010, under the leadership of Jerry Trousdale, uh, City Team International gathered together, they're now known as New Generations, to have a rebranding meeting because in, in, in their experience, um, church planting movements had experienced what has uh, been called semantic stretch, right? So it's this term is stretched to um, mean whatever somebody wants it to mean. Mm-hmm. And that actually happens in all sorts of social discourse. That that happens in, in tons of conversations, not just in the missions world. So they came up with a new term, disciple-making movements, uh, that they thought would be an improvement on it. Because in, in CPM, I think what you see is it's not so much a focus on church planting, but it's a focus on really disciple-making. Um, and then the, in the midst of, of making disciples, um, churches are planted, but it's not necessarily so the church planting movement is kind of a that term focuses on the end result, whereas DMM kind of focuses more on the on the process. Mm-hmm. So different people will will use those terms differently. It, around this time, too, people started saying, well, there's different methodologies for getting to a movement. And so you have T for T, which was an early methodology. Another one that IMB was using in training was uh, four fields. And then people started to use DMM as a, as a methodology and not as an end result. So uh, I think what's interesting when you really look at what people are doing in the in movements today, um, I don't think you ever see a pure four fields or a pure T for T or a pure mm-hmm. DMM. What people do is they really focus on. Uh, learning and evolving and doing what the Bible says as a leader, you love and you serve. And so implementing a movement or catalyzing a movement in every context is an innovation in and of itself. So it's not this implementation of a formula, like I think it it has been understood in the conversation so far, but it's really a, a, a dynamic process of learning and evolving in the context of serving and, and loving people. Um, so that's an important thing to say, um, an important note to make that CPM strategies are actually very, very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole thing about movement methodology, I, I think there's some principles we can we can really get to um, and some some theological concepts that I think are are prevalent in in the CPM discourse. But when it comes to methodologies, people are doing all sorts of different things. And that's part of it. You you experiment, you learn. Um, yeah, and you study the book of Acts and you see what they're doing. And there's a ton of gray area in the midst of that. You know, it's not like 
It's not like we look at the book of Acts and say, oh, if we just do what they did, we're going to get to movement in every context, right? If, if Craig Ott has a great chapter on this in Modus Day, if, if Luke had intended to give us a manual for starting a movement, he would have written something very different. Luke in Acts, this is the story of the salvation uh, extending to the nations and how uh, the Holy Spirit was working through the, the early church to do that. And so, that's what we're about. That's what movements are about. It's about extending the the healing and the transformative power of Jesus to the nations. And so movements are kind of um, fall in that vein and that idea. Mm, that's really good. Yeah, I really appreciate the reminder because I think what you said, the semantic stretch, that's a good word that happens to the the names we have for things. And then it also happens I'm thinking of the time of the Reformation, everybody starts to fall into different camps, right? And we still have people that argue over Calvinism and Arminianism, but it's like we start to even do that with something um, like movements of like, oh, which camp were you in? Four Fields or DMM? And we, um, it, all of these things just kind of arose out of out of people just pursuing the Lord and pursuing the lost. So that's a really good word. One of the important things too to note, I think, is what we're doing with, with the Modus Day Network and, and bringing together all these different people who are researching movements, this is this is different than the church growth movement. So people kind of will say that this is a continuation of church growth and, and, and then rightly, maybe in some ways, criticize it immediately. And so what we're trying to say, actually, this is a different conversation. And see, there's been lots of different types of movements throughout history. CPM is a is a particularly unique missiological movement in history that's come about in the global south, in non-religious Hindu and, and, and Muslim contexts, in places where there's not already a, a legacy church. And so what McGavran had really described was he came up with the concept of people movements. And McGavran was a genius. I mean, he traveled more than I think hardly anybody ever um, and did more research, I think, than most people, than 100 people ever do, ever do in their lifetime. And what he noticed was what was happening in the 20th century were these incredible people movements where, you know, like the Democratic Republic of Congo went from 5% Christian in the year 1900 to 95% Christian in the year 2000. And that happened throughout Africa and in a lot of contexts in Asia. It was the, the, the great century of Christian growth. But what he, what McGavern was really looking at were these decision-making processes of multi-individual conversions. Mm. So he was looking at kind of conversion to Christianity. What CPM, I think, would be... So it's, it's not so much about this kind of superficial conversion to Christianity... Um, but it's really about uh, disciple making um, and 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 spiritual formation. So I, I'm not saying that like CPM is perfect. There's ways to criticize it. I think uh, at least to criticize uh, the the conversation that we have and the ways we describe it. Um, but that it is something that is more um, focused on seeing people formed in Christ than I think um, the church growth movement was really focused on. This is a super open ended question, but where do you? I guess like where are we at today? Like now that we're we're to this point, yeah. Just kind of what's your view of uh, the scope of movements, and I'd love for you to just kind of answer that, speak to that. Yeah, I I think that the next step in this conversation now, we are looking at more than eighteen hundred movements that um, 
is encompassing around 100 million people. And so 1% of the world would be around 80 million people. Now we have around 100 million people living in the midst of a church planting movement. And if that's true, then our, our missiological discourse is lagging far behind God's work in the world. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and these numbers, I, I think they need to be, um, you know, th- this conversation around statistics uh, definitely needs to happen. H- how are we talking about numbers? But it's really th- the conversation on movements is the same way that, like, just to say that the Southern Baptist Convention, how they report on their numbers. The the same level of scrutiny that is applied to them could be applied to the movement's conversation. And so it's, um, you know, a phenomenon that that is a massive phenomenon. And yet most of the writings that have happened on movements have happened from North American males. So I, I think the next step in the conversation is really to look at how do indigenous um, catalysts themselves really describe the phenomenon. So w- when you look at the church planting movements phenomenon now, it, the way it's been described has been predominantly through white males from North America. And we are, um, people from the global North are actually a peculiar people in the history of the world civilizations. So there's a new concept that's come out just in the last 20 years looking at what how we are weird you know weird is an acronym for western educated industrialized rich and democratic and and so uh the ways that we describe things are very different than how people throughout the arab world africa and asia uh think so for instance uh, i'll just point out two things where i think we need development in our missiology the first would be around this the the idea that um you know, it really is, okay, abundant evangelism is happening in movements. That is true. But when you talk to indigenous catalysts, what the way they talk about is we, they just do a lot of ministry and they meet a lot of social needs and they do a lot of development and they share the gospel in the midst of that. But it's not like they have social action or social concern is in one category and evangelism is, is in another category. They're, they're much more unified and holistic as they, as they describe that. And so a, a second thing, just a simple thing that that needs more development is that we come from very um, the the global no- people from the global north come from very linear thought patterns and and um, has to do with a lot of different factors. And there's definite strengths to thinking linear- linearly, but there's also a lot of limitations. So like we we tend to look at time as a um, mon- in a monochronic way. Whereas people from the global south tend to look at time in more of a polychronic way. So they don't, they they transcend linear thinking. And for them, like a lot of different things and a lot of different processes can happen simultaneously. So like on the ministry level, what that means is we tend to look at ministry like first you do prayer, then you do pre-evangelism, then you do evangelism, then conversion, then discipleship, then theological training, then leadership development, then you release people for ministry. And when you do that, you you sometimes delay ministry activity for, for months or even years, right? So if you just look at the way Jesus, what we're trying to model our ministry on, he was developing people uh, from in, in their head, their heart and their hands and all at the same time. So they were, he was teaching them and they were learning and they were experiencing and they were involved in ministry right away. 
with when, while they were following Christ. It wasn't like they went through this program that finally they graduate from and then they can do ministry. So I think when you transcend that linear process into more of a polychronic way of looking at things and, and you start looking at movements as complex uh, adaptive systems and not these kind of linear approaches uh, to, to um, a ministry formula, then I think that opens up whole new avenue for description and analysis and we might actually, you know, movements are really not, in my mind, they're not that controversial, although they get they get criticized in certain certain circles. But in my mind, they're not that controversial. But I think one of the reasons for their controversy is we might actually not have the language to describe what is happening in movements. So we're going to have to go for a deep dive in the global south in order to see that the language that, that they use to describe this phenomenon. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's a lot of good insights there. Yeah, I, I would say people who are really curious about movements, I mean, I think all of your listeners, Feeney, um, are going to be in this conversation. But to really encourage people to get Modus Day and, and read it, um, we're going to come out with another book, hopefully in the next two or three years. But this is really what Modus Day represents is um, some of the most important and relevant uh, research on movements that has happened in the last eight years, um, all, all in all in one place. And it's, you know, all the chapters except for one were our original chapters in the book. So to to really get people used, and, you know, it's a it's a comprehensive look at movements, but we're really just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the next level of our conversation, the next stage in our conversation in Modus Day is to look at six different areas um, that we're going to be covering, the different gaps in CPM research. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much more to learn. Yeah. What would you say, I was thinking as you were sharing earlier, would there be anything to compare this to maybe from church history where 200 years later, we were able to look back and like the research kind of caught up with what was happening? I don't, I know maybe that's not a fair question, but just as you were describing that, I was trying in my mind to grab like, what else has that been like? where we're kind of like lagging on what you said, God's doing something amazing and we're just trying to keep up with him. Yeah. You know, we are creatures of our time and tied to our context. Yeah. Uh, we can look back and, and criticize William Carey and, um, and Hudson Taylor and Adam, Adam Judson for, for various reasons and rightly so, but you, we have to not be anachronistic in our in our critique, right? We we oh, we have to recognize that fallacy. Two hundred years from now, or a hundred years from now, people are going to look back on this conversation and be like, "Wow, they really missed that," yeah. or, or 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 "Wow, they're really ahead of their time there." Um, so it's just gonna it's hard to say at this point. Um, but I think one thing that we really do need, like I said, is really that intercultural perspective on the phenomenon. Mm, that's good. That's good. Well, thanks a lot, Warwick. If you're listening from the NPL world, oops, another acronym, the No Place Left world, I just want to quick connect a few dots. Jeff Sandel was serving in the IMB in Asia as many of these early movements were taking off. He came back to the United States and started implementing the same process. Jeff was the one who started training four fields broadly across the U.S. and an original vision of having catalytic leaders in the top 55 cities of the U.S. and Canada evolved into the current No Place Left network in North America. 
There's a lot more I could share there, but Steve Addison captures a lot of those stories in his early podcasts. You can check those out at movements.net. To find that or anything else that was referenced in our interview, head to the show notes, which you can find at ontheroad.link. That's ontheroad.link. This is Feeney. Thanks for listening. The On the Road podcast is to encourage you to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard.